trigger warning. This podcast contains a deep discussion about self-harm and eating disorders, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by vent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about the mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations with me your host freddie cocker each pod i check in with a very special guest we have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we'll discuss it Before I introduce today's guest, I want to quickly say that we now have a GoFundMe page. So I know that not everyone is keen on becoming a Patreon and becoming a subscriber to Vent. So this GoFundMe will allow anyone to make a one-off donation to support Vent, keep the lights on and keep this project going. So thank you to anyone who's donated so far. I'm going to put a link for the GoFundMe and the Patreon in each podcast show notes going forward. Thanks so much. And then now... Let me introduce you to today's guest. Some people might think that eating disorders solely affects teenage girls, but on the Just Checking In pod, I'm very passionate about highlighting that it affects men as well as women. So far, I've interviewed male ED campaigners like Sam Thomas and Danny Bowman, and on this episode, I'll be speaking to another one in the form of Tom Robert. Tom is a mental health campaigner, an ambassador for the Prince's Trust, and has worked with the likes of Beat ED, Young Minds and Time for Change. Tom lives with anorexia and was also diagnosed with autism when he was 22 years old, which he says shaped the way his eating disorder impacted his mental health. In this episode, we discuss his journey with his eating disorder, his relationship with exercise and sport, the bullying that he went through in school, and how he turned his life around from his darkest moment. This is how our check-in went. Tom, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you so much for coming on to share your journey with me. I hope I can stop asking this question very soon. But at time of recording, given everything going on right now in the world, we are slowly easing back to some level of normality. How are you, mate? And how are you coping? Hi, Freddie. Yeah, it's good, like, isn't it? It's good to be back to some normality. Get back in them pubs with the beer gardens, shall I say, you know. But yeah, I'm good, thanks. I'm doing well. The only thing that's kind of that's given us a bit of jib at this minute in time is I had my second vaccine the other day, so I'm kind of feeling the effects of that. But other than that, mentally-wise, I'm feeling really good and these things are looking up or some sort of looking up in in terms of all this pandemic kind of thing, so yeah. Excellent, mate. Really pleased that you're, you've got your second vaccine and yeah, I know, I know how you feel when it comes to the after effects for sure. I'm... So keen to get more male ED voices on this podcast, Tom. And your journey is another inspiring one that I'm sure will help the listeners. So let's just start the show. Let's jump straight into it on your pod, Tom, and start by talking about your journey. So first off, and I ask all my guests this question, tell me about your early life growing up in the Northeast. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you had? Who's the Tom we meet here? Shall we start with primary school first for you? Yeah, so going back to like them days of being so young, it seems miles away now. I had a hard childhood, I would say, in a sense, because I struggled a lot at school. 
even at primary school, I felt like I struggled. Been very fortunate that I've had a family that supported us all the way through. And and the first thing that I kind of faced really was when I was in primary school is I kind of got diagnosed with dyslexia. So that was kind of really tough because I think it kind of really showed then on on kind of trying to work out different ways for things. And I had to obviously in myself feel that bit different, even though in them times there wasn't much around kind of it's okay to feel like this sort of thing whereas now we do say these things and they're, they're so crucial and just in general I just felt even at a very young age very different kind of thing as you go on you'll, you'll see and I'll explain why I felt this different feeling I just didn't seem to socialize very well and again that'll all kind of come out later yeah it was tough it was tough childhood like you said, mate, your primary school years were a bit difficult at times, but you said to me off air that they were quite happy in, in lots of moments too. When it came to your dyslexia, can you tell me about how that affected your mental health when it came to education in primary school and then when you moved on to secondary school? So yeah, you're right. There was good times. I did have some good laughs and stuff, I guess. And I suppose looking back now, you laugh at a bit more, really. Some of the things that happened... Some of the funny things when I think back to it now are, are the things that I always was a bit accident prone. I would always seem to uh, get injured or get hit, which at the time was probably not fun. But looking back at it now, you know, me, my family were always getting a phone call just to say that comes in first aid again, you know, he's been hit by a ball or been tripped over or something like that. I did have some friends, uh, the odd friend I socialised with, they had a bit of a laugh and stuff. But with the dyslexia, Mentally, I think it did. I was very frustrated. I went through a period of time where I really, from that young of age, I kind of started probably at late primary school. I started self-harm because I was just so frustrated that I felt like everyone could do the work and I couldn't. And it was like, I always felt like it was like on a bungee cord. I felt like somebody was constantly pulling his back. That cord was constantly kind of holding his back and I felt like I knew what I wanted to put down and I knew what I wanted to say and the way it had to obviously had to be written on paper and I had to answer these questions and read them and it just wouldn't come out the way I felt like it should have came out and I guess I felt thinking about it now very silenced because obviously all these things and fears were going in my head and I wasn't able to kind of put down what I actually could think and kind of say to an extent. So it had a big impact when I think about it. And going into secondary school, again, it had had another impact because I struggled so much with work and stuff. And I basically didn't do my SATs at the time. And because of that, when I went into um, secondary school, they kind of thought that I wasn't able to do them. But it was more to do with, I just couldn't deal with the pressure in the effect it had on us mentally and then it went in like physically and that kind of created a big barrier because when I did go into secondary school there was a lot around just trying to work out where I needed to be and that took up a lot of time and, and caused a lot of disruption mentally and things like that. Before we move on to your experience of being bullied Tom I just want to go back to that self-harm if we can obviously I don't want you to go into very explicit details but for you what did the self-harm provide for you? Because I talk a lot about self-harm on this podcast. And for some people, it's a emotional comfort blanket or provided that emotional comfort blanket to them. Some people say it was a way for them to let out emotions. What did it give to you at that point? 
I would just say it was probably like the second option really it was like a, a way of releasing that kind of emotion and frustration for me frustration has been a huge issue I've had like where I get frustrated that I want to be able to do something at the time I wanted to be able to feel like the rest of the people and feel like others and feel like I could just somebody could say write a story and I could just write it down and and not necessarily think how it's felt how it's written what it says just kind of write it down and I think because I felt like I, I couldn't do that as in sense it was just so frustrating and again like I say I felt like I, I knew the answer and sometimes when the teacher would sit with us and would talk to us about the question or something and I would explain to them and I would tell them all about it they would be like oh that that's fantastic you know it you understand it but then when it actually came to what I'd actually written down they were like why have you not put anything down and I think that kind of really just showed and I think it was that anger and that frustration more than anything that self-harm alleviated it was that sense of pain was that kind of anger coming out like you said when you were 14 you started to get bullied in school tom and me and you shared similar bullying experiences whereby sometimes we were put in classes that were quite anti-intellectual and we wanted to have fun but we also wanted to learn at the same time can you tell me how hard that was to deal with for you and then how did the bullying manifest and affect your mental health as you navigated school when i first went into secondary school one of the classes i went into they put it into and actually i was able to do the work and within that class i was a higher kind of level within that class and i felt very sorry for these people because they were lovely people actually the people that were in the class really respected me and they would lose attempt a lot and throw things around and i was frustrated that we weren't getting the work done but like you were saying and again like i say they, they, they were kind of in some ways my friend that would talk to us they would kind of really give us a reinsurance it wasn't until later when i went to a higher class that actually that's when the bullying really started because they weren't interested in me and it was when i was about 14 and the, i moved classes and went into this class and they just weren't interested at all about learning and i was like yourself i was keen to want to know more and the students in their class just didn't and they would pick on the fact that i'd done the homework they would pick on the fact that it was always seemed really good and it was a tough time and, and everything I did that just absolutely obliterated my confidence basically eventually leading to a breakdown. If you could say Tom what was the worst thing anyone ever said to you during this period or the toughest moment like you said you did have that breakdown but could you pinpoint something if you could? I don't think it was one particular thing in general I'd, yeah I think it's just the relentlessness of it is what gets to you even like to an adult age, you know, you, you'll always get somebody who might say the odd thing or might do something that you think, oh, that wasn't very nice. And you can kind of withstand it to a point because you can kind of say, well, you know, maybe they're having a bad day or, and that's all right. But it's when it's every day for months after months after months, it just grinds you and grinds you. And it's like a tiny, tiny little chip comes off you. And that chip just gets more and more because obviously, as you can imagine, the more chips taken off you, there's no left of you. And it's that that, to me, causes the problems, not the one thing. It's the relentlessness. And I think, for me, there was a few things that did stick in my mind more, but it was over the time that I just couldn't take much more. 
I completely agree with you what you said, mate, about the relentlessness of it, and that's how it really affected me too. You told me off air that years later, when you left school, you actually saw one of your bullies on television in prison, in a prison program. How did you feel when you saw that? Were you triggered by it, or did it give you that sort of weird sense of achievement that you had survived and are now thriving where he unfortunately wasn't? Yeah, that was quite a funny moment, to be honest, to sit in your living room and uh, just be watching a TV programme, as you do, and, you know, you're just sitting there, and I was drinking my cup of tea, and I think I could have just about spit off my tea across the room, to be honest. It was quite something. Like you say, it was just an absolute awe of delight, I guess, like you say, you know, at the time, I'd, like you say, I'd, I'd done well, and kind of gotten through all of this and it felt like, you know, things are, I've had a tough life and things are tough, but, you know, I can get through it. And then he's kind of, he's come up and just kind of found himself. And I guess there's one word to sum it up, that karma situation, isn't it? Of basically life, you know, that life will get you back eventually. And that's exactly how I felt. And even to this day, when I think back to it, it, it makes us smile and it, and it gives us a good sense of achievement, definitely. At age 14, you like you said, you also had that mental health breakdown, Tom. If you could say, how did you feel in that moment? And then how did the early signs of your anorexia begin? And, and talk me through that journey when it came to the warning signs and then maybe the diagnosis too. When I was about 14, you see, I had a breakdown and that was kind of the first real mental health thing I'd had, really, the mental health illness and at the time, this this is quite a bit now, quite a while ago, and there wasn't much talked about mental health, to be honest. I was having panic attacks, anxiety attacks, things like that. I was just very unwell. I felt very physically unwell. I looked very physically unwell. And, yeah, it, it was a big shock. Like I say, there wasn't much about mental health. It was, a, it was just the start. People were just starting to say, you know, I remember... My mum was saying, you know, these panic attacks, these are within your mind. You're not making it up, but you feel like it's a physical problem, and it is to an extent, but it, it's kind of caused by anxiety and, and what's in your head and how you feel. And that was then was when I kind of started to think about mental health, I guess. But it, like I say, it was all very small. No one really talked about it. No one really kind of discussed it. I remember after all of that, going back to school after it, kind of talking about it a bit and the odd person would say to us oh I've, I've had panic attack i've had that and they would say you know it's very hard to talk about it and and you know these things are just horrendous to deal with and again it was that kind of medical point of people just starting to kind of talk about but they didn't want to you could see people wanted to but they kind of were like holding back because felt like this taboo stigma kind of feeling Towards me, my eating disorder, that wasn't too much later on. I was about 17 when I was diagnosed, but it was probably about 16, really, that it kind of took full force of the way I felt, the way I was in the grips of it all. And that's a very sneaky illness that kind of creeps up on you without without you even knowing. At the time, we didn't have a clue. I felt quite happy within myself to an extent. I think the biggest thing then was uncertainty. I was just leaving school and... I had a lot of family issues and there was a lot going on and I think it was a way that it kind of just snuck in there and kind of took a hold. It was the clever bit of the illness, really. Looking back, mate, although you said it wasn't the main trigger, you said a big factor, like you said, was some family issues you were having and 
as your eating disorder was getting worse, it was also at the same time one of your family members passed away. If you could say, and obviously you can go into as little or as much detail as you want, how did that period of grief affect your eating disorder and then your mental health too? Basically, I say this was at the start, I was 16 and, and I had just dealt with grief and grief is such a hard thing to deal with because there's no right or wrong answer. There's no one book that kind of solve the situation. It's a real personal hardship that you've, you've got to go through yourself. And you do feel very alone in a sense because I guess it's that feeling of how am I going to get through this without anyone? And I guess you've got to kind of remind yourself you have, you, if you've got family, friends, anyone, just talk to them and get through day by day. And, and you do. Don't forget that kind of with grief. I think you kind of lose that bit think you're not and you do and just take each day as it comes and I think it had a big impact on the eating disorder because again it was a way of I guess it was a way of coping just kind of like self-harm in a sense it was that's a way of coping from the frustration side and this was a way of coping again on what to do and how to deal with the way I feel so the eating disorder was able to also hold that as well at the time I was doing a bit of sport and that kind of just obviously got more addictive, very demanding. And I think it was a way of, I was hiding under, well, if I do this sport, I'll kind of feel better, which it's true. But obviously I was using it as a cloak to kind of hide the way I really felt. And I think that's basically how it kind of started when I was about 16, yeah. At the time, you were also working a job which was quite long shifts and you used that to justify skipping meals. But before we talk about when your health really deteriorated in a big way, mate, you told me there was a brief period at the end of year 11 where you did enjoy school to some extent. Reflecting on that now, was that a lull in the storm or was that a genuine period of contentment, do you think? Yeah, so there was, like you say, yeah, when it kind of came towards the end of, of school, I kind of sorting out all the things I'd felt. I did start to really enjoy it, yeah. I felt like I knew where my place was in a sense, and I felt like I had a, a few friends, and I felt like I could really socialise and, and really get into it. And I think also a lot helped is a lot of people's attitudes in general just changed, we all changed, obviously, as we got older, we all thought, well, actually, we do kind of want to learn, we do want to know what's going on. And for me personally, I think that helped a lot because I always felt like I wanted to know, but I always felt like no one else did. And then when I think that changed, it really kind of felt like, well, actually, I'm with everyone. Everyone wants to do the same. So it was a good time looking back because I I was quite sad that it was towards the end of school and and I was leaving. When you were 17, Tom, your eating disorder really took over your life. You were living on no food, basically, and just continually exercising your body to breaking point. Tell me about the Tom here, this part of your journey, and then when you were taken to hospital. So at 17, like you say, I, I was obsessively exercising, obviously not eating when near enough. I was pushing myself to absolute breaking point every time I would go out for that exercise, no matter what it was. And it was horrendous. And like you say, I would, would use any excuse I could. I would use work to hide behind it and say, oh, well, I had to over, always work over certain times. And yeah, there was a lot in it. Lots of manipulation and things to it. And yeah, just a horrendous time, a really awful time. And I would say, say now, looking back, 
in a way, I've learned so much thinking about what I know now to then. I guess just knowing that it was an eating disorder, you know, I guess just knowing that this is very serious, I think, at the time. The eating disorder, I think, kind of kept hiding it. I kept used to think myself, oh, well, it's not that serious and I'm not really doing that much damage or anything, but I was. Those little words says a lot. It says a lot in the sense of, basically, I'm very lucky that I've had a lot of support and I've learned a lot about myself. And I've learned a lot about trying to deal with things and learning on how to deal with things. How did you feel when you were diagnosed finally with anorexia, Tom? Was it validation for you? Did it still feel like a shock at that point? And how did you feel telling your parents about it as well? It was a shock. But at the same time, again, like, my family always really supportive. And in a way, the new, the new, they didn't know that exact thing but they knew there was something wrong it wasn't hard to kind of know that something wasn't right and I think we're all just glad that there was something that we could treat I guess I guess it's that thing of if you don't know what's wrong with something if you don't know what the problem is in a sense how can you ever fix it whereas when you know what the problem is you know what's wrong you can then start to fix it and I think I was at such a low point that inside of his the tiny amount inside of his was just more than screaming to that kind of relief of it all and kind of when they gave us that diagnosis it was kind of that relief of right we know what we're dealing with it's not going to be easy but we're going to help you get through it and i think in a way it was a relief rather than a bad thing knowing about it it wasn't until actually later on that i realized how hard it's going to be to kind of get over this and how to deal with this but I knew I was going in the right direction and that's all that matters really. Can you tell me about your journey into CAMS now and was that a turning point for you? Basically at the time yeah I was I wasn't classed as an adult and that was a time again I was pleased to get the support kind of been asking for for months and months we've been fighting so hard for it and it was a hard thing to receive and once it did I was so pleased. It was a turning point, like I say, it was a point of, right, we know what's wrong, we know how we can kind of fix this in a sense and everything's kind of going to be, be alright. Obviously it wasn't straightforward in the sense of how hard it is daily and how much you've got to push yourself constantly and how much you've got to fight your mind and how much you've got to force yourself to do the things that you don't want to do do the opposite of the way you feel but in the long term you've got to keep thinking to yourself that you're always doing better always putting that foot in front of the other and that's all that matters and it was it was a turning point it was a, a point where i can really reflect on it was hard but it was a good point in my life i suppose you spoke so highly of the community team that helped you when you were in hospital tom You told me they were one of the reasons, along with yourself, obviously, that you were able to come out of hospital so quickly. If there are any of those staff listening, I'm hopeful that they are. But what would you say to them? So when I was in the CAMS team, I was very fortunate. They've got a fantastic service that you don't have to go like inpatient as such. The way able to come out, there's like a community team that you were saying, where they can come out and they sit with you for meals and support you like three meals a day and sit for a good hour. I want a bit and it's absolute vital support and 
phenomenal support to be honest and they were incredible on top of that I used to see a therapist on top of that I would speak to someone that would check me my physical health make sure everything's going in the right way any kind of issues or problems could speak to them all the time it was a fantastic service and incredible that like, like you say that I was able to leave a hospital medical ward earlier and get the support I needed would do it with immune home you know it was sickening on and yeah i do i hope that they're, they're listening and they've done a fantastic job i want to move on to recovery now tom because recovery is never a straight line and that's something i had to learn myself in recent years despite the fact me telling people recovery is never a straight line i somehow believed it myself in some way when you were 18 and 19 you had a relapse in your anorexia recovery can you tell me about this period of your life and how that affected your mental health? Yeah, like you, like you say, it's definitely recovery's never a straight line. and Life's never a straight line in, in general, is it? I suppose that, that kind of makes, the, in a weird way, the fun of it, doesn't it? And yeah, again, like you say, I, I had a relapse when I was an adult this time. I thought things would be the same. I guess I was a bit naive because the support I had was so good. I thought, oh, they'll do that again, the same. And obviously, because I was an adult, it wasn't the case. And I had to go inpatient and things were very different. And the support was there and I did get a lot of help and a lot of support, but in a very different way. Some of it was harder because, like I say, you had to stay away from home. And I think that was really tough. In general, staying away from home is hard, but I think when you really you're feeling whether it's physical or mental, just unwell in health, then basically it's even worse to be away. I think in that sense, that was when adult life really kind of hit us. To be honest, I think it was also the fact that I had just turned eighteen, nineteen, and like most eighteen, nineteen year olds, you know, you you suddenly realise, you know, you've got all this freedom in front of you. It's suddenly just open to eat and go out drink and you can sort of do what you want, really. There's no one no one to kind of kind of stop you to an to an extent, but I think you're very naive at that age to realise with all this freedom comes huge responsibility and that was it really. Is that basically I want, I wanted the freedom but I hadn't taken on the responsibility of my own health. I have, in a sense, got to always keep checking myself and I have always got to make sure that I'm not sliding down that eating disorder road. And that is a, a responsibility for myself. And I didn't take that on. And it's a big learning curve, a big lesson to learn. I want to move on to something which you discovered fairly recently, Tom, which is that you're autistic. So you were diagnosed age 22, 23, and you're 25 now. Given what we spoke about earlier, about you always feeling quite different from other children, obviously that manifested probably a little bit in the dyslexia, but also, I imagine, it was probably a big reason for the autism that you didn't know you had. How big a moment was that diagnosis for you? And then talk to me about how you've navigated society past that point. So this is something that you say is fairly new. For me, I kind of, for a lot of years, my family's, again, my family says, are. Oh, I kept mentioning it and I kind of kept pushing them away and kind of saying no, no. But eventually I kind of came around and I thought, you know, maybe maybe I should give a listen to this. And there's now and have a look into it and stuff. And I did and I had a look online as you do. You Google away. Yeah, it was just like to get an assessment was the first thing. And when that happened, I thought, 
what does it mean from here sort of thing and unfortunately there's not much support but the good thing is it's not a mental illness it's just who you are but the good sense is that because of it I've realized even more on who I am and that's why I felt for so many years that feeling of just different when I first went on the website I laughed because there was that exact statement I've always felt different and I just went on and I saw it and I thought you know you just couldn't write that you know you, you couldn't write that and yeah it's made us realize that a lot of the things I felt a lot of the things I feel can be because I'm autistic and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with being autistic there's some fantastic qualities in it there's some fantastic things I am who I am and I'm proud of that you know obviously I'm not the perfect person but who is and learning all about it and learning how to deal with it and I've learned a lot and like you say it's just had a huge impact on everything really and I realise now even just daily tasks you know that I used to maybe struggle with there's a reason for it and like I said when I was 16, 17 and I got diagnosed with an eating disorder and this kind of thing of or you kind of don't want to be diagnosed, but at the same time, the good thing is you know how to fix it. And it's kind of that being autistic, it's not about fixing it, but you know how to deal with it. You know why you feel the way you do, and you know why you might say or do or the things you do, really. So it's been a fantastic thing, and I hope in the future, and I'm going to push hard to promote it and get more support for it, because I think it's so needed. There needs to be so much more about it. It would help people in so many different ways and it would just create a better world, I guess, and that's all we're here to do. There's been a lot of awareness and work done in recent years, Tom, about autism awareness and people being kinder and supporting those in their lives who may have autism or, or a form of autism on the spectrum. Growing up, how did you find navigating society with this undiagnosed autism? For example, in education, do you think the education system does enough to support or adapt to autistic children, especially in, in education, like you say, and if not, what can it do better, do you think, to help their mental health? Not at all. The first question is education just does not do anything at all. And I think they could do so much more in the sense of they could, one is they could help maybe diagnose people with autism, so it's not just on one charity. They could give if there are people who've been diagnosed they could give the students advice they could give them support i've had a course obviously just online and it's just like being like powerpoints learning about it learn about the way i feel learn about different ways i can deal with things and why i might do certain things and they could easily give something like that if they have a lot of students with it which i think they would find the word and i think they would find that the students would perform better as well. I think they would also find that from that they would get them students who might be struggling or might be kicking off in the class or might be just not doing their work or bunking off school or anything like that. They might be giving them not just kind of punishing them because of they've done wrong, but showing them, yeah, you have done wrong, but you know, you feel like this because you're autistic and because you're just struggling in life and in society it's just not built for people who are autistic and it's kind of not your fault that you're kind of struggling and you're basically being punished because you're struggling but from teaching them more about it and learning them more about what it means and things I think 
it could help a lot of people. It could help them get further in life and just make their lives so much better and so much easier for everyone, really. Going back to the eating disorder, if we can, mate, you told me that there's more research coming out that shows a link between autism and eating disorders, especially in boys. Can you tell me more about that and maybe any stats or research that you found that supports that theory? There's not a huge amount of research. It's very new research, very new that they're finding more and more there's, there's a bit of a link. It's not to say at all that just because you've had an eating disorder that you're autistic and if you're autistic you're going to get an eating disorder. It's just more they're realising there's a bit more common to it, there's a bit more link to it. They're finding that basically this is a bit more interlinked and in general I find that people who are autistic as well just struggle with their food in general. Not necessarily have an eating disorder but just struggling with the food either with just not liking certain tastes or textures or they're all like sensory things which people who are autistic can find a bit more challenging than if you're not. It's all very new research and I think as the future goes on I think there'll be hopefully I hope there'll be more done about it and I hope there'll be more into it and again I think it'll help support a lot of people in general. I know I was very lucky again when they did mention that I did have an eating disorder when I was about 18, 19, somebody did mention it and it, they never really took it further but again you know they, they might be able to kind of take it further in the future they might be able to say oh well we can help you get on to being diagnosed, we can get you into getting more help for it and then that might help you to deal with the way you feel and then that's going to help you deal with the eating disorders not going to get in because you know how you to deal with the way you feel and it kind of has a knock-on effect all the time doesn't it stopping kind of a real root problem helping you to learn to deal with all these different things and learning all about yourself you kind of use them experiences to kind of gain new experiences and to use on to learn right how can I deal with this and how can I use this to my advantage maybe or how can I change this or whatever really so it's exciting times actually about it really to be honest and like I say I hope hope there's more and more funding goes into it I hope there's more and more publicity about it and yeah onwards and upwards I would say. That's great to hear mate I want to move on to present day if we can now because when we spoke off air the pandemic we are living has hit everyone hard mate but it's hit you very very hard and it's probably made a lot of people aware of just how difficult life is for those with mental illness you told me that routine change is quite difficult for people with autism do you think that was the biggest trigger for you when it came to the pandemic and how that affected your mental health and then just tell me how more broadly affected maybe your eating disorder too the pandemic's affected everyone hasn't it and i think there won't be one person in the world that won't say it's affected them in some sense, you know. And I think that was the first thing is was that I didn't realise that it was going to affect us. Probably like a lot of people, you know, um, you don't think it will affect you much. But it does. And like you say, again, being autistic, it has an impact on the way we do daily living. And like you say, the change of routine, I'm not so keen on that. I don't like that. And I think that has had an impact. But I think it's about... Not just that, it's about everything. Everything's kind of changed, hasn't it, really? Everything on a daily basis now is all different. You don't feel as free anymore, do you? You don't feel like you can just jump in a car, go off and go to the shops and then think to yourself, oh, I'll go and have a coffee and I'll go and do this. It's all about thinking to yourself, oh, I've got my mask, am I doing two metres socially distance, am I doing this? And there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of, if I go to the shops, is it necessarily because really I'm putting myself at risk? And 
there's all these different things that are going in your head constantly. I think for me, that was just being autistic, feeling that overwhelming feeling was a huge factor. I think I'm always trying to get that perfect kind of idea and picture myself of what I should do and things like that. And as you know, life life's not like that at all. And especially in a pandemic, it's even worse. It's even more hectic to an extent. And it had a big impact is what we've seen in the papers, which is fully true, you know, eating disorders have gone up huge over lockdown. And again, I think something like your mental illness in that sense that it's it is a way of kind of coping to show your emotion. It's one of them things where basically you know you definitely don't want to do it, but you do it because you feel like you're coping better with it, even though it's making your life worse. It just doesn't make sense. But that's exactly kind of how an eating disorder works. In a sense, it's like that smelly blanket that you kind of love and comfort from. But at the same time, you wouldn't dare take it to a scientist and and ask them to say how many germs and and how unclean it is because it would be absolutely disgusting. But you couldn't wash it because it wouldn't feel the same and it wouldn't feel the same safety blanket. And and you dare not show it to anyone because you feel like, Oh, I'm being embarrassed. And that's kind of how an eating disorder kind of feels to us. And so it's not a comfort. It's just a way of dealing with things, but it's not helpful at all. That's the ironic thing. And it's really hard to kind of put that across. But within a pandemic and when everything's changed all the time, it's very easy to go back to the way it feels easiest. And that is unfortunately going maybe towards an eating disorder, which in the long run is just the total opposite. Thankfully, given what you'd been through previously, Tom, you were able to recognise how lockdown was affecting your ED and challenge yourself and get out of that mindset. I want to just finish on this topic with some recovery and reflection questions. So your relationship with exercise and food was previously in such a bad state. Can you tell me about what it's like now? Are you able to use exercise just as a self-care tool? And what is your relationship like with food too? For me, exercise is one of the hardest things really, I guess. Because it's something that I do enjoy. I do want to do it. And like most people, probably eight times out of ten, you know, it makes us feel really good. It makes us have a good outlook on life. It makes us get a bit of fresh air. It creates a lot of positivity, in a sense. But obviously for me, it's that bit of sweet sword, really, that makes life easier. But really, is it making life harder? And for me, that's really tough really tough because like you say it can really help with me autism in a sense but having a neat disorder so easy so easy to just slide back into old ways and get really in the thick of it and then once you're kind of in the thick of it it's very hard to pull yourself out it's a really tough one to try and work out what's best what i try and do is uh, try and just do a little bit of it try and recognize like you say the way i feel the thoughts that go in my head if they're not the thoughts that I know that shouldn't be there, then don't do the exercise and always mix it around. Don't get solid on it kind of thing. And then again, like you say, you've got to watch the food side of it as well. That side of it for me is not difficult in the sense I've never been like picky at anything. I've never been somebody who struggles mainly on the food. But I think the thing I find hard is sometimes... Unfortunately, being autistic sometimes can make you not feel either hungry. 
and especially if I get anxiety as well. I don't feel very hungry, I don't really kind of want to eat and things like that. So again, it, it's kind of easy to kind of say, oh, well, I'll, I'll not have this, I'll miss this out, I'll miss that out. And it's all energy that really all I need, and especially if, if I'm doing a bit of exercise, you know, I've got to do it. So I guess in a sense that really, majority of the time, I do have to just force food down myself, to be honest, it sounds awful, but it just doesn't make it that enjoyable. And, it, and it's sad. It's really sad because I know food can be a really enjoyable thing to go out for a meal and kind of really enjoy and, yeah, just soak up the time to relax and things like that. But it's not always like that. Um, there are times, but there's more times where I don't feel that hungry where I'm kind of just having a sandwich because I just know that I have to have a sandwich, basically. I have to get the energy in. As a final question on this topic, Tom... Given all you've been through and all you've achieved and recovered from, if you could go back and speak to that 15-year-old or 17-year-old or maybe even 8 or 9-year-old Tom who was in such a dark place with his mental health and how he viewed himself and his body, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? It's a tough question. I think it's not about that it's going to be all right because... No one knows if it's going to be all right or not. It's about, like you say, it's about using the knowledge you've got and just kind of trusting yourself more than anything, kind of trusting that you get through it, take each day as you can. And like I say, don't overcompromise on things. If you feel anxious one day, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with feeling anxious one day and then not feel anxious the next day. You know, that that's fine. Just accepting that accepting what sometimes life throws at you know accepting that we're living in a pandemic now for example and we'll all get through this and it's going to be tough but we'll all get through it and it's about learning all the time it's about listening it's about just enjoying the moments you get where you enjoy it but for daily living just do the things that you have to do and and plot on really don't stress about everything because you're just not going to get everything perfect and you're not going to please everyone but there's nothing wrong with that it's about just being the best you can do in that situation on what you know really we've talked a lot about your journey tom and what makes your story so special is that you've been able to turn it into this massive positive that i'm sure has helped so many people so tell me just how this story began and how you became a mental health campaigner. I don't like using the word advocate for some reason, so it gives me some sort of trigger in my head, but tell me how you became a mental health campaigner, basically. Yeah, so like you say, I guess it's kind of, even though it's been awful time, you know, going through all this, I suppose getting all these positives of, like you say, kind of speaking about it all and talking about it, and I'm really pleased I am able to do that. I guess it really came to me, like I say, when I was really thinking back, and that was probably being back at school you know like I say when I was I had that breakdown and I was dealing with panic attacks and I remember just speaking to people in school corridors the odd staff the odd person at school I knew just kind of saying yeah I struggled with panic attacks and I guess it was then that I, I kind of started to think to myself you know this is not spoken about this is kept so secret for what reason why what is that to, to hide from this you know why is it so secret because really the best way that I found that I've dealt with it is actually just talking about it, is actually just, just speaking about it. And 
I guess it was from then that was the thought I had and then obviously as I got a, an eating disorder it became stronger because obviously I realised I used to think to myself you know this is just horrendous that I've gone through but surely if I can go out there and, and help other people help services and help improve the voices for other people who don't feel as confident to speak up about it who don't feel able to speak up about it which is perfectly fine and and nothing wrong with that but if i can come out and kind of really talk about all of this if we don't talk about it there's more negatives to it than there is positives whereas if we do talk about it there's more positives to it and there's more kind of good things that can change and it's not easy talking about it in some sense but going through this is just so much harder and doing it alone would just be even worse and i also felt that a lot because i'm a male who has an eating disorder there, there is lesser out there you know there's a lot talked about eating disorders but a lot of it is talked about women with eating disorders and there's not much around males and at the time when i was 17 it was even less and it did feel a lonely place it brought it all back to his feeling that different when i was at school feeling that i guess the difference was was i suddenly thought to myself you know i might be different but i could be different and I could do good in the world and that's exactly what I wanted to do and it kind of fell into place and it kind of all kind of came together but I had a rough idea that I wanted to do it yeah. You told me about this catch-22 you had where you were told to stay at home to recover and get better after being discharged from hospital but mentally you still weren't in a great place so you wanted to kind of go outside and do stuff and keep yourself productive and proactive. How difficult was that for you before you got in touch with the Prince's Trust and then went on that journey with them? Yeah, so there was a point in life, like you say, where it's a really tough time and it's a really hard thing that you never think about. And to be honest, I'd never thought about it until it kind of happened to me. So basically, I'd just left inpatient. I'd been in a, a hospital setting for a long time. And when you're within a hospital setting, physical, mental, just in health general, really, you lose all your freedom. But with that, you lose all the responsibility. So the horrendous side is, like I say, you lose all your freedoms. You have choice, but you're very restricted and that choice can quite easily be taken away from you. And you feel like you're being silenced, which is awful, which is just awful. But it is for the better because if you're in a very dark place, you're not really thinking straight. So what you're saying might not be right. But when you come out and when you leave the hospital, Obviously, you suddenly get all your freedom back, you get to choose what you want to do, you get to just live your life the way you kind of want to live it to an extent, don't you? And it's a very hard time because, obviously, you might speak to a doctor and a doctor would say, well, I don't think you're ready to go to work, you're not ready to take on that responsibility, and I would probably agree, but the problem is, like you said, just sitting around in the house, like we've probably all experienced recently, you know, being in lockdown. It just destroys your mental health, which is ironically the reason why you're trying to stay at home to try and make yourself better, really. But it kind of destroys your mental health, so it's a bit ironic, and it's a really tough time to get through because you kind of gained all this freedom, but all of a sudden the responsibility is all on you. You've got to take responsibility for your health. You've got to take responsibility for your bills that you didn't have to worry about as much, you've got to take responsibility for everything. And when you've been in a hospital and all that's just gone for months, and then all of a sudden it's all back, 
within a day it's just huge it's huge it's, it's a massive thing you were given loads of great opportunities to do public speaking through the prince's trust tom and share your stories with others how big a step out of your comfort zone was that at the start and then tell me about some of your achievements on this journey which have been just amazing you know the london palladium for a start how big a moment was that for you like i was sitting i got the opportunity through this time of when i just kind of came out of hospital I did have a community team that kind of led us on to the Princess Trust. They kind of said, you know, you should get into, you might not be able to work, but that doesn't mean you can't do like other things. So the Princess Trust came up in that sense of an OT got us into the Princess Trust. I didn't really want to go at the time, but you know, she kind of pushed us and I'm very thankful now, looking back. It wasn't an easy time, but then it led on to, like, like you say, being a young ambassador. And from that, I was able to do public speaking. And then it kind of really kind of made this kind of mental health campaigner. I really thought, you know, I can really do this. And that was just fantastic. You know, that was absolutely fantastic to be able to go out and talk about things I've dealt with. Talk about how things that maybe that I would like to see change to help other people. It was just a fantastic thing to do, you know. And... It was something that I did really enjoy and I seemed to just take to it. A lot of people will comment and say that they're really good. And yeah, it was just something so different. So, so not me in a sense. I was so shy at school. I did like drama. I did enjoy drama, but I was really shy. And I guess that was the biggest hurdle for me in drama. Like I used to enjoy drama so much, but I always used to joke on and I always used to say, if I could just keep drama to a, like a room, never go on a stage that would be fantastic but looking back at it now going on stage was fantastic and it was unbelievable getting there to let you say to do the london palladium was just unbelievable absolutely unbelievable even to this day it makes us have a, a smile on my face getting a stand on that stage and give a talk was just priceless you know absolutely priceless it comparing words how much it, it meant to us it really was a huge huge thing and i'm so honored and so grateful that i got the opportunity it will be something that i will never forget definitely i want to pick out another couple of highlights now tom so you've done some work on the telly with bbc's lifeline program alongside the bed charity you've been nominated for the very big pride of britain awards and finally i have to mention this as you sent me it across before the pod but as part of the Prince's Trust, you also managed to meet Cheryl. Now, I had to check myself and not say Cheryl Cole there, but Cheryl. Tell me the story behind that and which one of those do you think meant the most to you and your mental health, do you think? Yeah, so through Prince's Trust, again, being a fantastic organisation and I would always recommend it to people. And yeah, it's been a roller coaster, and like you say, I've been able to do some fantastic things. And like you say, I was, I was nominated for the Pride of Britain Awards. I was really close to it, winning that as well. And yeah, I got to meet some amazing people. I got to meet, let's say, Cheryl. I got to meet her twice. She came down to Newcastle to open up the new Princess Trust Centre. And I got to meet her there. And then, let's say, when I was in the London Palladium, I also got to meet her there as well. And that was a fantastic experience, you know. It was to, again, I thought what happened was they told me, when I first got to meet her, they told me that, coming to open up the centre so I kind of knew she was coming and all that and they said oh would you come and do a few words again do a bit of speaking and things like that and 
I did, yeah. I felt great, fantastic. So it was a long day. It was I got up at uh, six in the morning or something, or if not earlier. Had to be there for just before seven. It was all over the press as well. I couldn't believe actually how much press there was on it. There was a lot. I remember getting loads of texts from different people and watching like different uh, news programs in the morning and saying, bloody hell, you're on the telly, what you're doing on there and things like that. So that was quite a funny thing. That was quite a funny experience and it was really good. I got to meet not just her, I got to meet a few people that day and then what happened was towards the end, I went up and, and gave a few words and then she kind of came on stage and said, you've won the National Young Ambassador Awards. And then that's kind of how I first met her. And yeah, and she's an absolute fantastic woman. She's a very strong woman. You can tell when you meet her that she's very strong. And yeah, it was just great to meet everyone and fantastic to meet these people that you watch all the time on the telly. And you just wonder what they're like as person, don't you? When you meet them, they're very much like you say on the telly. It's not better, to be honest. You realise that we're all just human at the end of the day. It doesn't matter kind of what job you've got. We're all just human and we're all just out there to kind of hopefully make a better world for ourselves. Our final topic of conversation, Tom, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general chat and natter about our mental health. So firstly, circumstances including or excluding at time of recording, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Yeah, I would say it's good, yeah. Like you say, it's such an odd time living through the pandemic and in lockdown and dealing with the changes. And But yeah, I think in a weird way, we've all, at some point throughout the lockdown, we've all been through a dark bit. But then you kind of come out of that dark bit and then you feel a bit better. And then you kind of realise that actually just try and live the way you kind of have to live, really, don't you? So I feel like I've been through the dark bit. And now I'm kind of into the more pleasant bit. In some ways, a bit boring because it's just uh, daily living, working, and not doing much much fun with everything being closed. But things are starting to open up. Like I said, beer gardens at this time are starting to open up, and coffee shops and things to sit outside and all that. So it's a good time, and, and I hope that I'm looking forward to the future and looking forward to everyone getting out and looking forward to. I think this is going to have a huge impact on everyone in general. and Hopefully everyone will kind of just be that bit more maybe kinder, you know, because we'll all been through this together, you know. If you go into like a, an outdoor coffee shop or something and you see a waitress or anything, or you can kind of say to them, oh, how have you felt in the lockdown and how have you dealt with it and talk about it and, and get really understand their side of the story. And it's interesting, it's interesting. We've all lived in this same situation, but everyone got such a different story to tell about it it really fascinates us and really makes it uh, interesting to talk about i guess can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health tom so who was it with what impact did it have and looking back did you feel like a part of you had changed or maybe a big burden or weight had been lifted or did it seem fairly insignificant and quite normalized First thing I never really talked to somebody about it was like I say it was when I was at school and I just kind of had panic attacks. I think it was either one of my teachers or some sort of staff within the school. I can't remember exactly who, fortunately, but it wasn't like a conversation I would have now. Definitely, it was just more of I've had these things called panic attacks. I was kind of talking to them about it, and then they was like, "Oh well, actually, I've had them, and I know what they're like." and they're horrendous and awful and I, I totally get where you're coming from. I guess that was kind of the first conversation. That was kind of the first 
normalizing kind of mental health really in a way and that was probably when I was about 11 10 somewhere around there I kind of dealt with it and started to talk about it a bit yeah and that was kind of the first start of it all really we've talked earlier in the pod about your triggers Tom so I want to talk about the tools and methods you use to help your mental health which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but maybe haven't um oh it's a tricky one that one I think the first thing is to say is what works for me might not work for anyone else and it's such a personal thing for anything anything you're learning really just because it doesn't work even if somebody shows you oh well that's the way to do it it's not at all like you learn the way you want to learn in in a sense as long as you get whatever you got to get done done then I suppose that's the way you've learned and that's the way for you for me I think it's just knowing me thought pattern knowing what's in my head and knowing I just know the thoughts that go in my head and I know basically which thoughts are an eating disorder thought and which thoughts are myself and which thoughts are not a good thought and what I can do to kind of stop that. Like I say, something like sport, I've got to be very careful. I've got to be always on my guard. If I feel like I'm doing it because I have to do it, definitely that's a way I'm like, nope, total opposite. I'm going to sit here, do no. Then that's a kind of way I deal with it is basically the opposite of if I feel them negative thoughts, it's the opposite. I do the opposite is probably the biggest tool I use. In general, I think my tools are just knowing myself. Like I say, I've, I've learned that I'm autistic. I think that's a big tool. I have a variety of tools knowing that if I go into somewhere for a shop, somewhere like a shop or something like that, and it's very crowded. Sometimes I can find that quite intimidating to an extent. I find that there's too much goes on, like there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of things happening at once. And I've realised, knowing that it's okay to not feel like I can deal with it. I think in, over the past, I've always forced myself to deal with it. But actually, now I've realised, you know, if I feel like I can't deal with it, just go outside, especially if, for example, a pub somewhere like that I could just say right I'm gonna go and get some fresh air go outside get some fresh air and calm down a bit and then go back in and you find that even though the situation hasn't changed at all you feel like it has because you've kind of calmed down and you've kind of really changed so I think that's a big help and that's through learning who I am and learning that I I am autistic and in learning all these different ways so yeah that's probably just two of them I can think off the top of my head but it's probably more than I realise on a daily basis. And as a final question, Tom, and I'm sure you'll have a lot to say on this, it's a broad one, but what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think one of the first things is basically everyone should be able to feel like they could speak about what they want to speak about. There should be no stigma no hatred towards it you know everyone's had a different experience everyone's had a similar in some aspects but different you know and i think to get people to speak out is just about again ironically it's about trying to speak out just to try and get a message across that don't be afraid to kind of speak out in case i think it's about kind of creating a bit of a safe space so that people do feel all right to speak out i think you feel scared to speak out in case of the reactions it's going to cause. And I think that's what we kind of need to hold back on is we need to kind of realise that, you know, no matter what people say to an extent, you know, 
if your experiences have been like that, then that's your experience. And it's trying to, to break that down. And I think it's getting there a lot. You know, I think sometimes, in a way, I feel like we've came a long way. In it feels like a long time, but actually it is quite a relatively small time. Like I say, from when I was probably about the first conversation when I was about 10 to now, so 15 years, we've came from having scared to talk about a panic attack to now talking about, like you say, we're talking about men with eating disorders, we're talking about so much more in depth and detail, which is fantastic, an absolute fantastic thing. And we're getting people who, like you say, we're seeing people who we wouldn't expect to speak about, which is fantastic. It's it's just unbelievable. And amazing and it's the one part where I look to the future and I think you know we might be going through a crap time at the minute but you know the future is looking really good if it continues and you can see it just going open up and open that's absolutely fantastic it's when it's going down that I think we'll need to kind of to worry a lot but I think it's just getting better and I want it to continue and more working kind of talk about the more kind of create these safe spaces and and know that really your experience is your experience and there's nothing wrong with that. Tom Robert, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you very much. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Tom is a great man doing so much good work for other men who live with eating disorders. So thank you to Tom for coming on. Let me check in with him. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Tom on social media in the show notes so you can find out more about his journey. Thank you to all the venters who tuned in for this episode. As always, if you've liked it, please give it a share, social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it. Please drop us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps the algorithms and helps this pod reach more people. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, like I said in the intro, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash vent help UK or you can visit our GoFundMe page. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay. Okay.